Well, good morning. Welcome to FBN this morning. We're really glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, uh, look around you. There should be a black one and a seat back uh, near you somewhere. Uh, If it's not within reachable distance, ask your neighbor. They'll help you. Uh, And they'll get you to you. You can get to page 895. You'll be with us right there in Mark uh, chapter 8. So you can follow along in the scriptures. And I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you're here this morning. I'm thankful that you uh, set aside this time to be here. If you're a guest, we're especially grateful um, and know how hard it is to try something new. And so if you would, just stop by our Connect Desk on the way out. we got a gift for you for coming. Uh, but as, as thankful as I am that you're here this morning, I also want you to come back tonight. Uh, to, at 5 o'clock tonight, we have a, just the church appreciation night. And so we're uh, going to just have a good time. Um, we're going to have some bounce houses for the kids, lots of food for you, uh, chances to fellowship. Um, when it was July and we were planning this, I thought it would be a great idea to do the dunk tank, uh, but we've already announced it, so I'm sticking with it. So come watch me freeze, right? And then we'll, go, we'll fight through that, and uh, we'll just have a good time and, and uh, hope that you can come out and fellowship. And my challenge to you is not just to come, but to spend at least a few minutes talking to somebody who goes to a different service than you that you haven't met yet and just get to know them. Uh, that's the point of fellowship events, right? Uh, to, to increase fellowship. And so we hope that you can be here tonight uh, from five to eight and, uh, and that uh, uh, if, if you come, uh, we'd love for you to bring a side of dessert. Uh, we'll provide uh, all the meat and stuff, uh, but, the, but other than that, just come and enjoy the evening, and we hope you can be here. But before we get tonight, we got to get through today. So uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this message this morning. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for what this day holds. Uh, Lord, just uh, the chance to, to gather together and worship you and sing praise to you and hear from your word and then to, to regather and just have a, an, an evening of, of fellowship and fun and uh, just, just to enjoy the body of Christ. And so we thank you for all of it at the outset. And as we look uh, now to your word uh, and as we wrestle with this question that, that Jesus lays before his disciples and Mark lays before his readers, we pray that you... Uh, God, would, would move, you would speak, that you would convict, uh, that you would encourage, Lord, that you would just have your way in this room. And I ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, if you've noticed things being a little different lately, you're not alone, right? If you're like, man, the air seems a little crisper, my grass all of a sudden looks greener, my food's tasting better, you're not wrong, it's just that football's back, Right? It's not fall, right? Football is like the one redeeming characteristic of a vastly overrated fall with all its pumpkin spice mediocrity, right? All you guys that love fall, I don't get it, right? You know, but that's each each their own. But football is like the one redeeming thing for the season for me. And it's actually a little bit worrisome to me how popular it's getting, right? And, and I read this this week and I was like, ooh, this might be getting out of control. Uh, the NFL season started on a week ago this last Thursday, and that game, the opening game of the NFL season, was the most watched uh, event on television, show or event, anything on television, since guess when? The Super Bowl. So it was the most watched thing since the last time football happened, right? And so clearly it's just sort of starting to take over the country at levels that might be a little too much. But if you're here in Indiana, there's a little less excitement this year uh, because the Colts are terrible and they're expected to be terrible, right? But if you're a Colts fan, I've got, I've got good news for you. Okay? You can always just, in, anytime you're watching a game and they're being really bad, just take your mind back to January 21st, 2007. That was the date of the AFC Championship game where the Colts faced the dark, cheating empire known as the New England Patriots and their Sith Lord, Tom Brady, right? 
And that game, if you remember the build-up to it, was, it was just emotionally exhausting because the Patriots jumped out to a 21-3 lead and just seemed like everything was lost and we're going to lose the cheaters again and it was all going to be over. But then something happened. The Colts mounted this furious comeback. At one point, even taking the lead in the second half, all to find themselves down by three points again with less than two minutes to go and they scored a touchdown in the closing seconds to go to the Super Bowl. And I remember what it felt like the entire state sort of just shutting down for that game. Right? You could drive through a town and there'd just be nobody out there. And I remember how it felt like the entire state just erupted in joy after. But every now and then, they'll replay that game on TV over the, over the 16 years since. And I'll always stop and watch part of it. But do you know what's missing? All of the tension. All the nerves, all the emotion, all the stress, all the joy, it's all gone. And you know why? Because I already know what happens. I already know the end. And I tell you that because we are studying the gospel of Mark together. We're going through this book as a church. And I fear that each week as we go through these stories and we go through these narratives, that what we're missing is the emotion and the tension and the joy and the confusion and the wonder and despair because we already know the end. We know who Jesus is. We know that the cross is coming. We know about the resurrection. We know it all. But you know who didn't know any of that? It's those who are living it. And it's why I'm thankful for passages like the one we get to look at today. It will show us that while this was actually happening, there was great confusion about who Jesus was. And what we're covering in the book of Mark today is actually a very crucial passage in the gospel because Jesus, in today's passage and in next week's sermon, he's, he's going to confront the disciples with the matter of his identity. Right? And, and, and then after this conversation, once that's settled, once he's, he's made it clear what his identity is and what his mission is, then the rest of the book of Mark t- it has a tone shift and it's all about him heading to Jerusalem and preparing to die. That's where the rest of the gospel goes, right? And the question that we're going to read Jesus asking his group of guys this morning is a powerful one. And he looks at them and says, who do you say I am? And the answer to that question determines more than you realize. Your answer to the question of who do you say Jesus is shapes your priorities. It alters the amount of stress or worry in your life. It brings or eliminates security and steadiness. And ultimately, it will shape your eternity, which is why I'm really glad that you're here today. Because we won't just watch the disciples and the crowds of Jesus' day wrestle with his identity. We're going to bring it home and make it personal and lay the question before each and every one of you as well. Who do you say he is? And so to frame this time, I invite Ruth up to read today's passage. She's going to be reading for us Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand to honor the reading of the word of God this morning? Morning, Ruth. Good morning. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Thank you, Ruth. You guys have a seat. As always, keep your Bibles open there. Uh, to Mark 8. Now, you might notice we're getting close to Mark 9, which means we're getting close to eight full chapters into the book of Mark. And what we see here is that one thing that's not settled for many of the characters, obviously outside of Jesus, 
One thing that's not settled for many of them is this question, just who is this Jesus? Now, Mark didn't want to leave his reader's intention. Do you remember how he started his gospel? Mark chapter 1, verse 1, very first thing he says in the book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He just lays it right out for you, right? He doesn't want you to be in the same tension and mystery that the the people who lived it were. Later in chapter 1, Jesus is baptized, and God the Father speaks in an audible voice from heaven, and Mark records it for us, that you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Then as we move through the rest of the gospel, whenever Jesus comes face to face with a demon and casts out demons, right, they have identified him, and the title they use is the Son of the Most High God. And so again, for us as readers, right, we're not left in mystery, There's no mystery for the readers of Mark. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, but the main characters outside of Jesus are still wrestling with it. They still aren't sure because they don't have what we have. We know what's coming. We're looking back at this story. They're living it. But there is an advantage they have over us. They have something that we don't have. And they had a full grasp on the context and culture of their day. Not because they had to study it, not because they had to learn it. They just lived in it. They knew, right? Which is why us, even with our 2020 hindsight, we still miss a lot of the subtext and setting of what we're reading. We miss a lot of the point of what Mark's trying to drive home. And there's one of those kind of like subtext settings in this passage that, that is very powerful and I want to point out to us this morning because Jesus does everything well. Most of us get that. But I don't think it's mentioned enough just how brilliant of a rabbi he was. Right? We, we talk about how he's a great teacher. We talk about how he's the most successful developer and discipler of his students ever. But man, but man, he was also incredibly intuitive and he was creative in his leading and shaping and forming of these disciples. And he would use everything at his disposal. He'd use all of creation and even use parts of that culture and parts of where they were to reveal things to disciples to help them understand. And there's a detail in this passage that is one of those very things. Look at verse 27. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, you and I might read that and be like, okay, it's like a geographical marker. They're going to this town with Caesarea Philippi. Move on. What's the point of this story? But there's, there's something in there for this, for us. Right, Caesarea Philippi was a city that was 25 miles north of Bethsaida. And I want to tell you about the city. Jesus taking his disciples to that city while having this conversation is not an accident. Okay, the city was named after two people. It was first originally named after Augustus Caesar. And then Herod Philippi, when he became Tetrarch or king of the area, he added his own name to it. Right, it was called Caesarea after Augustus Caesar, but, but Herod added his name to it to distinguish it, as he said, it distinguished it from the other Caesarea in the Mediterranean coast, which is kind of a neat way of just saying, of hiding how I wanted to add my own name to it because I'm an ego monster, right? But in the, in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, there was a temple dedicated to the Roman Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and the glory of Rome. Herod Philip, who was the tetrarch of the area, he built his palace there and then erected several buildings and features and statues in honor of himself and his little kingdom. And it, was, it was a very fertile area. It was one that was, uh, had much wealth, kind of high economic area. Basically, it was a very, very strategic city politically. And when you walked in the city, what you saw on display was the power and might of earthly kings and earthly kingdoms, and it was there for all to see. And Jesus knows that he's chosen this exact time to reveal not only his identity to his disciples, 
but also help them to see what they have wrong about his mission. Because what was the most common view and understanding of the Messiah and his purpose? It was widely believed that the Messiah would be a political, nationalistic ruler that was destined to free the Jews from Roman domination. Basically, he would overthrow and conquer Rome and make Israel the new Rome. And if that was the true mission, then for the Messiah, Caesarea Philippi would be an incredibly strategic location to conquer. It's one of the first places you would start. And that is the backdrop and setting of where Jesus is taking his disciples, where he's going to reveal to him his true identity and his true mission. It's that location where he calls a crowd to himself at the end of this chapter and asks them, tell me, what does it benefit someone to gain the entire world, everything you see behind me, and yet lose his soul? Walking up to the site of Caesarea Philippi, about the only thing that you could think about was earthly kingdoms. It was, it was put on display for you. And Jesus lets that setting paint a literal picture of their misunderstanding of who he was and what he came for. And then using that as a backdrop, he'll point them to his much higher calling. It's a brilliant strategic move by Jesus. And he sets the stage for this by first asking disciples, who do other people say that I am? And this is where we get to see in the Bible recorded for us that even 2,000 years ago, Truth is rarely found in the masses. Right? Public opinion is rarely right, if ever, right? Let's take a look at their answers. Verse 28. They said, they answered him, John, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Now, there's something I want you to take note of. When Jesus asks questions, he never asks them for himself. Right? Jesus already knows what people are saying about him and believing about him. Jesus already knows what the disciples believe about him. And so whenever Jesus asks questions, he's not looking to fill in some gaps for some ignorance he has. He, it's always to elicit thought and discussion and introspection from whom he's asking the question to. And there's a couple of things about this list that we're given in verse 28. And the first is, it would be a flattering list for anybody except Jesus. Right? These, are, these are honorable, honorable guesses here, right? John the Baptist was the greatest prophet in his season of ministry. Jesus called him the greatest born of a woman. Not only that, for Jesus to be John the Baptist, you'd have to have some sort of miraculous God move because John's dead, right? So he'd have to be resurrected and then come back to the scene. And so this is kind of a, a pretty high-level guess. Number two, the guess is Elijah, who was, who was widely considered among the Jewish people the greatest prophet in Israel's history. Or thirdly, he's just, he's just the newest prophet, the next prophet along the list, somebody who's been set apart by God, who's received messages from God to share the people. All of these are either positions or men of great honor. And all of them fall way short of who Jesus really is. And that's the second thing about this list, is it's just flat wrong. All these answers are wrong. Right? And, and here's the thing about that. Jesus has revealed enough. He's shown enough. He's said enough. The miracles that he was doing, no one had ever done. He has displayed in, in public settings that he knows what people are thinking without them saying it out loud. God called him, this is my son in whom I'm pleased, at his very public baptism. He, he, he's, his teachings have left people amazed and inspired and convicted and hopeful. He's displayed power over the created natural world itself. There's nothing else that needs to be seen. There's nothing else that needs to be heard or nothing else that needs to be revealed. But what did all of these answers have in common? They're easy. They're easy because there have always been prophets. And while prophets are distinguished and important, guess what you could do with prophets? You could ignore them. 
Many of them were killed, just like John the Baptist, and life just went on. But if God had truly come to earth, if the Son of God was in their midst, that would require submission, that would require surrender, that would require a recognition to his authority and his, his design. And from then until now, widely accepted public opinion is often the path of least resistance. Public opinion has very little critical thinking behind it. It seeks only the ways, only, only which the way of the wind of the culture is blowing. It elevates comfort and feelings over truth. It's always the easier answer. And so it was just safer and better and easier and more comfortable just to leave Jesus in the prophet pool, even though they'd seen enough to know he wasn't. And people still do this today. Paul talks about humanity in Romans 1. He says, God, for, his, for God's invisible attributes, that is his, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. That's Paul talking about just creation, not, not the word of God, not revealing himself through his son, not the indwelling of his spirit, none of those things. Just creation enough, Paul says, God's revealed enough. He's shown us enough. He's told us enough so that we have no excuse left. But to recognize a divine authority higher than me requires then submission and surrender and obedience. And so we reject what is plain to see. It's why we need to come to the question that Jesus puts out there next. Because our view of Jesus actually shapes our lives. He moves past public opinion and he gets more personal. Look at verse 29. He, he emphasizes you twice. He says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, I want you to notice the difference in the answers here, right? For the public opinion, it was like, well, you know, some are guessing this, and some are guessing this, and others this, but there wasn't really strong conviction. But Jesus says, no, you, I'm asking you now, who do you say I am? And Peter, as he often did, speaks up for the group. And what Peter does here is he speaks with great conviction He's bold and uncompromising and says without any qualifiers, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed, promised son of God. And we're going to get to verse 30 in a moment where Jesus tells him to keep this quiet for, for his reasons. But Jesus accepts this answer. He doesn't say, ah, oh, thanks, Peter, but you're still a little off. No, he just accepts it. There's no need to correct Peter because it's the right answer. And yet there's still work to be done. Right, let's, let's give disciples credit. They get this answer right. But, but understand this, they're not there yet. There's a reason Jesus is asking this question in the shadow of Caesarea Philippi. It's why he makes them declare this. Because they are right in that he is the Messiah, but they're way off in their thinking about what the Messiah came to do. And what Jesus has picked up on is that their view of him and his mission and his purpose is shaping them. It, is, it has been clouding their understanding of his teaching. It has frustrated them when he gives time and attention to the Gentiles. It's confused them when he spends so much time out in the wilderness and never seeking political or military might. They were convinced of who he is and really confused by what he's doing. Which is why Jesus needs to have this discussion now. Because next week, in the verses we're going to read next week, he's going to drastically change and alter their view of the Messiah and his mission. And this enlightenment would have major impact on their lives and their hopes and their futures and everything that they thought was before them, and it's going to leave them bewildered and confused. 
Which is why he starts with this. He starts with having them make this open confession about who he is first. Because they're going to need that in about five seconds. They're about to be confused. And they're about to be shattered. And they're about to be just, just completely blown away by what they're healing. Their hopes and dreams for this life are going to be dashed. Everything earthly that they're banking on and looking forward to is going to be taken away in about five seconds. You ever been in a similar place? Where in a single moment or a short period of time, something comes along and the, and the first thought you have is, man, nothing's ever going to be the same again. But the future that you were banking on, the future that you had imagined and envisioned for yourself is simply gone. The things that you were counting on and hoping in, they aren't there and they won't be. See, what you need in a moment like that is an anchor. And Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Son of the Most High God, is the anchor that holds true in those moments. This is why he's given almost 200 names in the Bible. It's why God has revealed himself in creation. It's why God has revealed his nature and his gospel and character over 66 books when he gave us this word. It's why he seals us with his spirit indwelling in us. Because when everything around us doesn't make sense, when nothing is going our way, we can return to this. I know who my God is. I know he's good. I know he's able. I know he's able. I know I'm his, and I know he has this, and that's, that's it I have for now, and that's enough. See, the apostle Paul suffered miserable, awful things for his faith in Jesus. There's not a one of us in this room who would ever want to endure what Paul endured. But in his letter to Timothy, he gives us the secret to how he kept going through all of that. Second Timothy 1, he says, that's why I suffer these things. He doesn't hide from it. Listen to this language. He says, but I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. I know him. And I'm persuaded that he's able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Do you see that conviction? He's like, Timothy, I suffer. You see it, Timothy. I've suffered miserably. But I know who it is that I believed in. I know my God. And I know he's able to take me home to be with him one day. And I know that suffering and grief and pain and death do not get the final say with him. And I know he can get me through this. You see, our our view of God doesn't just shape our priorities. It should, right? It absolutely should. Our view of God doesn't just form our convictions, though it absolutely should. Our view of God doesn't just change our goals and our missions for for life, right? And though it should. The right view of Jesus' identity actually secures us and strengthens us and holds us in every season of life, especially the ones that don't make sense. Which is why each of us must come to the right answer to the question, but you, who do you say that I am? Now we need to know this. We're not going to get everything right. right. Disciples, ace this quiz. Give them credit. 100%, A plus, right answer. And they're still wrong. Look at verse 30. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Now why would Jesus do that? Who do you say I am? They give the exact right answer. He's like, all right, keep your mouth shut. Why would he do that? Well, they still, they have the right answer to that question, and yet there's still so much they've got wrong. And so they're not ready. They're not ready to go shout this and proclaim this because when people would ask questions, they would answer all the questions the wrong way. They would get the messaging wrong. They would, they would start putting ideas and thoughts out there that have nothing to do with what Jesus came to do. They would do way more harm than good. So you've got this question right. Be quiet. There's more to learn. And it's the reality that that we won't get everything right that makes it that much more important that we see Jesus the right way. 
Right? Romans 3 says that we're all sinners, right? That we, we all fall short of, of God's glory, that there's nobody righteous, not even one. Which is why we need to be thankful that the kingdom of God is not based on merit. The kingdom of God is not based on achievement or earning. You don't have to get everything right in order to follow Jesus or know God or get to heaven. But there are two things that we need to come to an honest assessment of. And the first is our identity. That we are not perfect. In fact, we're very flawed. We are sinners at our very core. There's something wrong with our world, and what's wrong is us. There's nobody who's ever been worse to me than me. There's not a single person in my life that's caused me more pain than I have. And, and we say those things, we recognize, yeah, that makes sense. And yet we turn and we are incredibly drawn to the messages that tell us that we are our own authority. That we should listen to our hearts and follow our dreams and look within ourselves for our guidance and answers and hopes. And the problem with that messaging is massive. My heart is sinful. My dreams are limited and almost every time selfish. I'm temporary and closer to death every single day. To believe in myself would be very short-sighted and incredibly foolish and would feel good for a season and lead ultimately to misery. But to give myself a break and take all of the weight and all of the pressure and all of the glory off of me and just admit I don't have it all together, that I'm not the answer, I'm not my own hope, I don't get everything right. In fact, I'm often a mess. But I don't have to save the world, and I don't even have to save myself. Because that job has already been filled. I just need to get over me long enough to see what God's done for me. And that's why, though we don't need to get everything right, there is one thing that we have to get right. We must get Jesus' identity right. All those citizens in Caesarea Philippi would, would declare, Caesar is Lord. And their confession would identify them as, as citizens of Rome. And at times it would spare them of aggression or punishment from the Roman Empire. But it would never, ever spare them from their own sin, their own death, and or hell. So your confession concerning Jesus Christ is a literal matter of life and death. Jesus put it clearly in John 8. He said, you are from below, he told them. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus didn't hide from this. Rightly recognizing that I'm a sinner deserving of death, understanding that I can do nothing to save myself, actually opens my eyes to see the Son of God dying on a cross for me, raising from the dead to offer me eternal life with him. And what's left when I see that is not earning it, What's left is not trying to match his efforts. What's left is not me trying to prove myself to him. What's left is simply believing it. Receiving it by faith and submission. Confessing him as Lord and asking him to forgive and save me. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's the promise. You will be saved. And we don't get that by thinking Jesus is a good person. We don't get that by claiming he's one of many paths to God. We don't get that by saying, oh man, that Jesus thing is good for you, it's just not for me. We get there by recognizing I have zero hope and zero chance of ever knowing God and experiencing eternal life outside of Jesus Christ. That's only by faith in him and his death and resurrection that I can be saved. 
And knowing who he is, knowing what he's done, will literally save my life and save my soul for an entire eternity. Now, knowing that won't just save my soul. Jesus' identity is a truth that we can return to again and again and again. See, the, the other aspect of Jesus' brilliance here is when he makes his disciples rightly proclaim who he is right before he shatters their world. It's like he wanted to remind them, make sure you know who I am because I'm about to ruin everything for you. And it's a strategy he encourages us to employ. John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. There's a pretty heavy sentence in the middle of that where he just flatly states, you will have suffering in this world. It's a promise, right? It's not maybe. It's not maybe you can skirt through without it. No, you're going to suffer. You're going to be in misery. You're going to be in grief. You're going to be in pain. It's going to happen. But take note what, what envelops that truth in that verse, right? God never hides from suffering in the world. But at the start, look what comes before and after it. In the face of suffering, you can have peace. And the reason that you can have peace is because Jesus has overcome the world. Not because you're so strong, not because you're so mentally tough, not because you're an overcomer, overcomer, but precisely because of him. Now, there might be some in this room today who need to answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? The right way for the very first time. You need to declare this morning. You need to declare him as your Lord and ask him to save you and take over your life. You need to believe in him for the first time. And if that's you, I plead with you to do that this morning. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to pray and, and, and just call out to him to save you and forgive you. But there are probably also people here who just need to return to that truth. Who just need to remind themselves once again who he is because they are living out that promise. They are having suffering in this world. Their days, their lives, their plans, their schedules, their hopes have been shattered and you're confused and you're hurting and you're grieving and you're in pain and you're just basically doing all you can just to get through the day. And so my encouragement to you is to let your thoughts be on him in this moment. Not on your circumstances, not on your just on him. Return to the truth of his identity and tell yourself, I know my God. I know who it is I believed in. I know he's good. I know he's capable. I know he has this. And for this day and for this season, until you see a resolution in this life or don't, let the stead rock anchor of his identity be enough to steady you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that Jesus had the wisdom just to lay this powerful question right in front of his disciples. To, to, to bring it home from public opinion, to bring it home from what others are saying and look them directly in the eye and say, but you, who do you say that I am? And so, Lord, I pray that that question would lay in heavy on all of our hearts and minds in this room right now. That we would consider what our answer to the question, but you, who do you say I am? And Lord, if there's anybody who walked in this room this morning and you weren't their Lord and you weren't their Savior, they have, not, they have not believed in you, they have not given their lives to you and trusted you to forgive them, I pray that right now would be their moment of salvation. God, that they would simply just believe just surrender to your authority, to your salvation, to your gospel, and that you would save their soul. But God, for the struggling, for the hurting, for the confused, 
for the ones whose future looks different than they thought, for the ones who just don't know what you're up to, for the one with more questions than answers right now. I pray they would return to the truth of your identity, that they could have the conviction to say, I know who it is I've believed in. I know he's good. I know he has this. I know he has me in this time. And may just pondering who you are and pondering just the reality of your sovereign goodness, may that be an anchor that steadies them in this moment. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.